Welcome to the Irish Tech News Podcast, presented by the tech doctor, Ronan Leonard. Hi, welcome to today's Irish Tech News Podcast. Today I'm talking with uh, Nishan Shevachandran, the CEO and founder of Iron Lakes, who's also going to be one of the speakers at this week's uh, conference run by Common Trade to the Services, Creative Quality Conference. And this, this year's topic is AI Demystified. So how are you, Nishan? I'm good, thanks. How are you, Ren? I'm great, thanks. Now, first, I'll tell a bit about your background. Sure, well, um, well I've, I've always had a uh, penchant to uh, technology. So um, I suppose as a child of my generation, I, I grew up with the Amiga 64 and the early 386 PCs and dial-up internet. Um, but my going into my background, it's not, I guess, as traditional as a lot of people in, in the tech sector. So, of course, I have my uh, computer science uh, degree, which is my kind of, you know, my, my background. Um, but I actually found myself after that going into uh, policing in the UK. So, I actually have, well, my policing career was very much an operational policing career. It started from uh, community policing and ended in emergency response. Uh, but somewhere in between all of that, um, I found myself working in uh, digitalization projects uh, within the force that I was working in. Yeah. And within um, the, the digitalization projects, I was actually doing some uh, digital forensics work and intelligence work um, for units that at the time they were called high-tech crime units, but of course now we know that as cybercrime. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, so on, on, on leaving, on leaving uh, operational policing, I decided to go back into academia. So I went back to do my master's in cybersecurity, which was very much to galvanize all of the operational experience that I had from, from the police. Um, and then I did a, uh, further postgrad work in uh, cyber warfare, um, surveillance and security. Um, and then from there, I've gone on to research um, areas uh, involving keyword analytics and social media relating to extremism and radicalization, uh, for example, and other kind of similar themes uh, within cybersecurity. Um, and then this year, actually, I co-authored a book with uh, my mentor from university and one of my colleagues um, in Iron Lakes. Um, a book's called uh, Cyber Defense in the Age of AI, Smart Societies and Augmented Humanity. So that was published by Springer this year. Um, and then a bit more on my background, I suppose. So I've been a member of uh, the Institution of Te- um, Engineering and Technology in the UK for a couple of years um, and also a fellow at the RSA. Mm-hmm. Um, I've done some work with uh, IEEE, the uh, Institution for Electrics and Electronics Engineers, um, working on some of their workflows for the creation of the P7000 series of uh, ethical AI standards um, and ethically aligned design uh, uh, framework. Um, But yeah, but after doing all of my research and the work with IEEE and going into, I guess, the ethical uh, domain of, of, of technology, that very much brought me into Finland. And through some of the work that I, and involvement that I've been have in in the UN, that got me to setting up my company, which, as you mentioned, is uh, Iron Lakes, yeah. uh, which is essentially a cyber consultancy um, that encapsulates you know my experience and my, and my projections and those of my decentralized core team um, into something that's bigger than ourselves. So we essentially we're walking the line between private and, and public sector, the NGO and the business space to um, really do projects or um, that connect problem solvers with, well, what I say is problem solvers and problem owners. So our our, our projects uh, really range from uh, bespoke data security advisory, for example, uh, going through to building collaborative ecosystems uh, to address actual real-world problems, uh, looking at UN SDGs 
and work in smart cities, for yeah. example, uh, and human-centric society and that kind of thing. So that, that's a very, uh, that's a very, very kind of concise uh, background to where I am. So, so yeah, entrenched in operational, I guess, policing and, yeah. and security, but then going now into the human-centric side and using consultancy as a vehicle to really progress and push the technological envelope in, in a lot of the things that we're seeing today. And I guess since you've started uh, working in cybercrime area, you find that it's got more sophisticated. Yeah, I, I mean it's 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 a good question, really. I, I think with, with um, cybercrime, I think cybercrime itself, in terms of sophistication, it's uh, it's been steady and incremental. So you know, it's very much been a, a, a straight line, and it's very much been in line with the evolution in technology. I think the the, the real kind of uh, thing there is that it's actually the uh, prolificity of technology that's um, increased the effectiveness and impact of yeah. cybercrime. So whilst cybercrime is steadily becoming you know, more and more um, sophisticated, it's because technology is actually reaching greater proportions of society and how we use technology. So the impact of cybercrime itself is has a high impact on society. It's not just, you know, it's not just a, a very abstract thing that only happens to companies with data breaches yeah. or, or, or whatever it is, right? So, I mean, a good example, and, and well, with, and when I was talking about the uh, prolificity of, of, of technology, I think really in, in, in the cybercrime context, technology is actually being used as a vehicle uh, for technology, or as a vehicle for uh, uh Criminality, I, I yeah. suppose, to so actually augment the the effectiveness of, of criminal operations. So, so I mean, a good example will be in in recent days we've we've seen um, the police raids across the UK under Operation uh, Venetic, which was the uh, National Crime Agency and European partners um, who infiltrated the. I'm, I mean, I'm not sure. Are, are you aware of, of 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 Operation Venetic? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, for, I mean, for, for for the I guess I guess for listeners that might not be aware of it, or people that are listening outside of the UK, for example, uh, essentially um, French and Dutch intelligence agencies cracked um, the uh, EncroChat service. So EncroChat is was a secure communications platform that uh, utilized a very, I guess, what I would call a case-hardened or battle-hardened Android phone or a flavor of Android yeah. that was very secure on a handset. And um, it was utilized by criminals for this reason because it was very secure. They could communicate with each other supposedly anonymously and securely without fear of being surveilled and whatnot. So French and Dutch agencies were able to uh, infiltrate the network and also monitor the servers that were in France and, and the Netherlands and monitor the communications and actually identify users of this network, which has then led to um, the raids and, and the arrests of certain criminal uh, or individuals involved in or suspectedly yeah. involved in criminal activity and uh, high-level organized crime um, so that I think is very interesting because of course when we're talking about organized crime there's a lot of other aspects of traditional criminality but now that's being supported by a lot of these technological components and actually what I find interesting in that respect is is the fact that when we start look because cybersecurity generally is more <laughs> Not just about the technology, but it's also about the legal frameworks yeah. and the uh, you know, and the governance around that. So, what's interesting to me when I start looking into the law enforcement side of things is seeing how what what legislation they've used and what the mechanisms they've used to actually surveil, and also with the jurisdiction issues when we talk about France and, and 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 the Netherlands and the Schengen area in terms of data surveillance, and then the UK raids and all of that's very very interesting. But that I think, yeah. So so so. 
yes, cybercrime is definitely more, um, I'll say it is more sophisticated, but at the same time, it, it's not as if it's suddenly, you know, we've woken up and we're in this no. <laughs> world of really advanced cybercrime and no one knows what's happening. I think the, 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 the criminality and also the law enforcement aspect has also been growing steadily, but we just see more of it perhaps. And I think we're realizing that it's, it's more interconnected than we originally thought. Yeah, I read a book by Mr. Glennie called Darknet, and that describes how, how the FBI got in, 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 in encroached and then, then, then taking down one, one of the main websites that was, that was used to sell the products that you could actually uh, do crime, like uh, ways of, 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 of screening money or, or bank machines and all that. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, 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 so that's so that's very much the thing because um, originally, and especially when I think back to perhaps what I might define as my early kind of career in in cybersecurity, where or, or or cybercrime, where it was very much digital forensics or phones that might have been used by you know people in involved in drugs or other elements yeah. of criminality, or looking at uh, when we think of internet crime and you know talking about exploitation of vulnerable people and and you know maybe some radicalization types of things. But of course, there were, there were very digital crimes, so to speak. These were crimes that occurred in the digital space, and yeah. so the investigation was around that. Whereas now it's very much like you're saying when we're talking about you know very physical crimes. So so you know whether it's ATM machines and and those kinds of forgeries or or even the operations of actual organised crime syndicates. But technology is supporting that, and they're using technology to secure their kind of I guess for all intents and purposes their business processes. So organised crime is very much a business in its own yeah. right, uh, at least on their side, even though they operate on the wrong side of of, of the law. Let's say. Um, but of course, the, you know the, the technology, the, the technology, the adoption of technology to use that, uh, and it um, has kind of again made their operations more sophisticated. But it's very reflective of, of what we see generally across the board. So the same way that you see um, banks or any you know any company or you know whether it's a utility company or some consumer company that we all as citizens or people use, and you know they have apps, apps and more digitalized processes. The same thing is happening in criminality. I think, if anything, this is probably helping people realize that criminals aren't this. You know, the, it, criminality isn't an abstraction. It's it's very much a, a you know a reflection of what is happening in on the lawful side of the world, but mm -hmm. then using the same mechanisms on the unlawful side. Yeah, because I, I can just imagine it's like Moore's law. Every eighteen months, CPU chips in. Every eighteen months, there's going to be a new way because technology uh, <coughs> gets more advanced. So will the criminals as well. Yeah, absolutely, and like I say, so, so so that's why in terms of sophistication, it very much, you know, it, it keeps it keeps you know it keeps in line and in time with 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 the with the evolution. And of course, all technology is flawed. Um, there's no technological implementation that doesn't have a glitch. So of course, when you start thinking of even when you start thinking about cybersecurity or cybercrime in the sense of attack vectors and exploiting you know, a, a vulnerability in a particular system. Yeah, there's always a glitch, and even if uh, there's a new iteration or a new evolution of the technology, there is always a glitch or a vulnerability that is exploited. Then, of course, you have the iterations after that. Um, or, as you're saying, just in terms of how a technology is used. Um, again, as technology becomes more accessible or more advanced, now when, even when you think of computing power that's available for someone, you know, everyone has a mobile phone in their pocket, and yeah. you know, most flagship phones have more computing power than your desktop PC. So, so that in itself provides a whole new level of, um, I guess, cyber capabilities for not not just your criminal, but just your everyday person. Uh, yeah. It's it, yeah. 
And I'm thinking as well that also with the advent of cryptocurrencies, that'll make your job a bit, a bit harder. Yeah, uh, that's it's an interesting question. I, I suppose it really depends on um, what you define my, my my job as being. Really, I suppose, I suppose looking at it from from different perspectives. So, so I think um, I think if you're looking at cryptocurrencies as a concept, yeah. I think generally crypto you know cryptocurrencies as a concept are a progressive thing. And I'm avoiding saying good or bad because I think even though I'm a technologist, I, I kind of try and avoid being binary yeah. in, in terms of in terms of how I think. But I think having a form of digital asset that is you know decentralized uh, and so in theory immune from any kind of government or central agency manipulation or interference, I think you know is a progressive thing, um, yeah. and it's very much reflective of the paradigm shift that I think technology is creating in terms of the democratization democratization and human centricity yeah. of, of, of technology but but that said of course if I if I were to put my law enforcement hat back on um, of course cryptocurrencies create additional challenges so it, you know when I when I think of thinking of whether you know if you know going back into the role of being a, a digital forensics investigator or a cybercrime investigator um, would it make my job harder Yes, I think yes, but I would, I would, I would err more towards the side of more challenging, purely because, especially from a law enforcement point of view, um, a lot of it comes down to resourcing. So when mm-hmm. we when we start talking about uh, cryptocurrencies and, and the nature of criminals using cri- cryptocurrency, because that's a very uh, technical and specialized area, and it, it in turn requires a specialized form of investigation and certain skill sets, um, that people have in order to pursue that. So as a law enforcement investigator, um, the way law enforcement resourcing is, is applied is very much applied to maximize on the low-hanging fruit. So when you start having elements of investigations that are going to be resource-intensive or very expensive to investigate, um, a certain law enforcement agency might not have the resources, for example, to actually get the right or, or have access to the right investigators yeah. or, or, or the right people to investigate certain things, right? So, so I think I think really in terms of the the difficulty of that, that that's probably the bigger challenge. It's more the resourcing because, of course, uh, as we know, cryptocurrency itself, I don't think is you know is total anonymity. Um, I mean, Bitcoin is a good example. Is more um, pseudonymous rather than uh, anonymous. Yeah. So, so you know, so I mean, of course, that that, that the the, you know, the cryptocurrency is tied to wallet, but not to the people. Um, but whilst the owners aren't necessarily identifiable, all of the transactions can be tracked. But saying that, of course, in a lot of uh, jurisdictions and uh, I guess under laws of certain areas, a lot of cryptocurrency exchanges are required by law to. Uh, document the personal data of the people using the exchange for the currency. So, so again, there are there are ways there are ways and means. It, it so I'd say so. Short answer to that question. I know I kind of gave lots of yeah. different uh, view, views there. I think the the short answer to that question is not necessarily harder, but more complicated. Yeah, I'm thinking um, of ransomware. Thinking of ransomware where they they say to you to get data back on an unencrypted hard drive, you got to paste forty or four or ten or whatever big Bitcoin. And once the Bitcoin goes to them, it's hard to find out who the person is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, again, I mean, there are ways and means, of course, you know, depending on, you know, using the exchanges. And, and there are actually um, some interesting solutions out there. Work, um, Iron Lake's currently working with a couple of companies here in Finland, actually, that specialize in 
um, the forensics of uh, cryptocurrencies and utilizing some interesting forensics tools where within uh, cryptocurrency exchanges. So again, like I say, it's not. I think it's it, it's not that it's uh, impossible, yeah. but because it's because it's very uh, highly specialized. Again, you start getting to that point of saying, well. Does the crime meet the resources of what it would take to actually investigate it? So perhaps on a one-off instance where a sole person might have malware on the computer and they have to pay whatever Bitcoin, will a local police force investigate that and be able to have the resources to investigate that? Probably not. Whereas if it's something like when we look at WannaCry, which hit the NHS yeah. and widespread, and actually a lot of the world, then suddenly you know, it, it, it's in the public interest to actually... To, to do that right so, so I, th I think that's the thing as I say nothing is impossible it's just down to resourcing so so yeah cryptocurrency definitely has made things uh, on one hand it's a, you know I think it's a very very progressive thing and I think it is a, a really really good tool but like with any tool it also gives the options open that, that can be used by criminality which then also presents its challenges but I think the important thing there is to if we focus resources on making sure that the tools that we use in law enforcement, you know, we can use tools appropriately to actually fight that rather than actually attacking the, you know, attacking the, the mechanism or the cryptocurrency yeah. itself. I don't think it's the failing in the cryptocurrency, it's the failing in the resourcing of law enforcement that makes that, that presents the difficulty in, in, uh, you know, in, in investigation of, of, of that. You know, so if we get banks behind cryptocurrencies, there's more of a chance because if they started saying we accept these now, then it's going to be harder for, for criminals to use it if the banks can can track what's happening. Yeah, exactly, exactly, and that, and that, and, that, and that's the thing. I mean, of course, by by virtue, cryptocurrency was very much initially to move away from the banks to to almost remove some of the control that banks or or these large entities have in controlling value and whatnot and value of assets and control of assets. But like you say, if if if, if banking and financial institutions are actually part of this system as well, um, again, I think again. You, you, of course, there's a lot of work that needs to be done to kind of work that out. But at the same time, having the balance then of having a decentralized system that also still has the, I guess, the appropriate powers and mechanisms that banking banks do provide. Because like yeah. I say as well, it then it, it, it makes it in their interest as well to make sure that it's properly secure and that it's being utilized properly. The same way in the US, for example, even with traditional US currency, there are laws that exist that... Um, enable the U.S. to investigate crime based on whether a U.S. currency has been used. So U.S. currency, if it's been used in other countries and other jurisdictions, if they've used U.S. dollars, there's certain legislation that allows U.S. government to investigate those crimes you know, if needed. Yeah. And so the, 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 you know, the, the, there are ways and means and there are mechanisms, really. It, yeah. Now, one more thing that has got me thinking about is about next world war. Do you think it'll be a, a cyber war? Ah yes, so um, so yes, a cyber war. So um, yeah, short answer yes, uh, long answer yes. However, um, yeah, cyber cyber war very much being like I said, like a, a, a weapon as part of a larger war. So so for me, cyber war is um, cyber war is to a physical war the same way I guess nuclear weapons are to a con you know to conventional weapons. Yeah. Um, so so I think. And well, with cyber, with cyber operations more generally, I think that actually it increases the number of threat actors that are on the stage of conventional warfare. So when we think of um, you know countries that have perhaps no nuclear capability or actually a smaller conventional capability, now with the appropriate cyber uh, capabilities, which in comparison 
in terms of cost there's a lot less you know to have actually very very good um at, you know an adversarial on a warfare level cyber capabilities is a lot less expensive than it is to have a nuclear functionality um and having that, those kinds of capabilities will make that particular country just as great an adversary as the traditional superpower, uh, I guess, you know, ad- advers- adversaries yeah. that we are used to. And I think, um, but of course, one of, the, one, of the, one of the dangers really in this space is that cyber operations aren't limited to just state actors. So, of course, you can have lone wolves or what the people define themselves as, you know, as stateless actors that are very much, whether they're singular or small cells of people that, you know, bear no allegiances are you know aren't you know accountable to anyone or any such entity, but you know, but can do certain things. And and, and again, we we mentioned it earlier when we were talking about WannaCry. You know, that's a good example of that where the NHS. You know, I mean, obviously it was worldwide, but the NHS in particular um, was pretty severely hit by that in the UK. But then the actual perpetrator is, uh, you know. One individual yeah. who, who's who's actually done that, right? So, so, so suddenly now, you know, the, the balance of power, so to speak, is has uh, has shifted. But I think when we start looking at cyber again as a weapon or as a, I guess, in in terms of a, a, a warfare um, a, a, a usage, um, I think really we start to actually see how weaknesses in key and core parts of uh, infrastructure and industry can actually be exploited. So when we start thinking of legacy SCADA systems in industrial and manufacturing processes, or even if you're looking at critical national infrastructure, so for example, you know, manipulating the water grid to allow water mains to become uh, contaminated or shutting off power grids, knocking out traffic controls and transportation grids in major cities or jamming communications, for example. And, you know, and as, as a means of, I mean, part of those, of course, in terms of for, for disruption. But then, of course, when you start looking at things that are start affecting people, so when it's you know affecting the water grid or affecting power in some instances or, or, or contamination of some kind of supply chain or disruption of health services or things like that, these, these disruptors that can be caused, you know, enacted from a distance. Yeah. You know, no, no gun has been fired. They're still, in theory some level of plausible deniability. But even if a nation state decides not to deny it, the fact that, uh, as a lot of states are very much, um, I guess some might call it being belligerent, but I guess you know, rattling the sabre, kind of showing off about that, look, we have these capabilities. And similarly, to, and, and I, I use the example of, of, of nuclear weaponry for this reason, is that when you have think of the Trident missile program, where it's, they talk about the first strike capability, but the idea being that the hope is that one is never fired, but it's just the fact that they have this capability is enough of a deterrent to stop other countries yeah. from striking, right? So it's the same with cyber. The fact that the, the argument is we have the capabilities to shut down your country or, you know, or, you know one, one, com- one country or one entity can shut down another, you know, if threatened or, you know, if whatever happens as part of a wider thing. Um, suddenly changes the concept. So, so yeah, so I, so I don't think, I don't think the next, I don't think the next world war you know, should there be a next world war? I certainly hope there isn't. Um, I don't think it'll it'll so, solely be cyber, but I think cyber will very much be, you know, either the first strike or part of. And it could well be actually that the next world war is actually the next world war is actually triggered by um, 
a cyber event. It could, yeah. you know, it could. Work. But but again, it. But this is again something that's very dangerous as well because one thing that everyone, well, most people know in the cybersecurity industry um, and sector is that attribution is a very very de- uh, dangerous thing and. Attribution as well is a very difficult thing with a lot of these things, a lot of these attacks. And so it's sometimes very difficult while something might happen. It's, it's very difficult and very dangerous to lay blame, again, to say, well, we've traced this to yeah. you know, a former Soviet nation, let's say, so therefore they're the perpetrators and we enact certain treaties and it starts a war or whatever it might be, when actually you know, it's, it's, more, it's more complicated than yeah, that. I, so, I can remember when I, during the one coronavirus and there was a, there was a segment in the news in the BBC talking to uh, uh, the, some, somebody in a British Navy boat, big huge ship, and in the background was, was a computer running an older operating system. And I, I was thinking, that's the first place you're going to get hit if you're still using older OSs on, on the answers with the military. Yeah. Why, didn't, why had they hadn't up, up, upgraded their systems? Exactly, and that's the thing, and that and that's the interesting thing as well in, in cybersecurity more generally. Because of course, when people, it's very similar to AI. Because when, when people think cybersecurity, people think of the you know the Mister Robot. I say Mister Robot. You know those level of attacks where you have teams of, of hackers that are really kind of doing some very very technical um, APTs or other such <coughs> attacks against certain yeah. things. When actually the majority of the time it's through either not necessarily low hanging fruit, but yeah. almost like a social engineering type of thing, where where, you, where you're looking at the easy vulnerabilities. So when you're looking at legacy systems and uh, unpatched systems, and you know when I'm talking about you know social engineering in terms of access control, who has certain levels of access to systems, and actually people that really shouldn't have the level of access that they do do, and then those people are targeted and exploited to gain access to systems. And a lot of cybersecurity breaches and instances don't actually result in any kind of um, happening, so to speak, but yeah. a lot of the time it's more gaining access because and a lot of attackers want to gain access undetected and remain there for a while because the information and the access is probably more important than doing damage. I think it's more valuable to have, especially when we start thinking of industrial espionage, for example, it's, it's more valuable to have the knowledge and the intelligence on what another company might be doing rather than just causing some disruption that can be you know, yeah. that can be resolved in a matter of days or in a matter of hours or and the certain damage control and whatever else. So we're going back to a, you know, in, in, in the warfare, I guess, uh, I guess context, um, that's, that, that's, that's the difficulty and that's the challenge, but also that, that it's, it is very much going to be the tool in, in, in the wider arsenal. And, it, and, it, and in some contexts, it might, it might actually be, I don't know, I mean, it's difficult because of course warfare isn't humane. But but thinking in time, you know, when we start talking about damage or collateral damage and physical damage and such things, when we start thinking, well, if countries battle each other in in a cyber context where there's a bit of disruption on an electronic system, but actually there's no loss of life and no loss of property or anything like that, perhaps perhaps you know perhaps that might be an option that a lot of militaries want or, or societies want to actually explore before thinking of sending boots on the ground or or things like that, but. But again, it, 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 I mean, it's, it's a whole other kind of, uh, you know, area of discussion and, and exploration. Yeah. Really. I guess because I'm yeah. thinking that it's going to be the start of a war. Like, like when you started, uh, like if we think right now, 20 years ago, we thought the first start of a war would be a nuclear weapon. Now it's going to be a computer. And it's going to involve no loss of human life as such. Maybe, if we're lucky, we won't have a scenario where suddenly a nuclear power plant goes in overload. But it'll be just like a... 
startup saying, we're in your systems now, we control this, we control that. And once that's been dealt with, we then get boots on the ground. Exactly, exactly, yeah, and, and, and that's very much what I was alluding to, almost as, yeah. as the first stage. So, so causing that level of disruption um, to, you know, whether it's knocking out a power grid or jamming a communications network or whatever it is, but but essentially, um, you know, um, maxing out the the adversary's, uh, I guess, response capabilities or limiting what they can do in terms yeah. of response to then enable boots on the ground or, or the next stage of, of an attack or whatever that might be. So, so again, yeah. So, so, um, yeah. So essentially that, that first strike weapon, that isn't the nuclear option. I, I think, I think especially with some of the, uh, I guess people involved in the military in this region, at least that I've been speaking with, um, I think of course, New, the, the nuclear option. Well, when people talk about the nuclear option, it's you know that's you know that's like the top level of escalation, right? Yeah. So, so I think now with cyber capabilities, new, the nuclear option has almost been shifted as opposed to being the first strike. It's almost you know when all else fails, yeah. there is the nuclear option, and actually cyber can be more effective in that way. But of course, it, it can. But at the same time, it can still have the same effect as as nuclear options because when we're talking about Again, when I'm talking about critical national infrastructure of a, of, of a country, so now you're you're targeting individuals and people at a you know at a citizen level now of how people can be affected. So, so and the range can be from you know minor disruption to you know actual harm. Yeah. You know, done in you know we talk about you know contamination of of of, of supply chains and 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 that kind of thing. Right? I'm thinking of Stuxnet, oh, and if that was that was more to get today, it could do more damage. Oh yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, but, 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 but that's actually a, a, a very good example because because there as well, when you've got the um, you, you've got the use of cyber as a, it's very targeted. But again, it was very targeted to a specific um, use case. Yeah. So 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 I think that's the thing, and and also a, a lot of the cyber capabilities again, it still relies on the. Um, more of the traditional frameworks that, that that countries use in terms of rules of engagement uh, and that kind of thing, in terms of where and how you use it, and yeah. who are going to be the targets, and who's going to be affected, and in terms of you know, when we're talking about you know collateral damage and and all, and all of these military kind of concepts. Um, I think whereas again, but because the use of such um, capabilities aren't just limited to you know traditional militaries, I think that's also the danger as well because again. When you have someone who's very capable, who is a lone actor, so to speak, um, who might not like the the stance that their particular country or whoever they're allied with is taking, and actually decides to take matter into their own hands, it's a very. Um, it's a, I mean, on one hand, it's interesting in terms of the legalities and how you combat that, but also it's it still can be quite dangerous. Yeah, and earlier you spoke a bit about AI. Are you advanced about how worried it has become? I'm quite I'm 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 quite well known that I I kind of perhaps uh, say something unconventional or, or I say things as they are. So I'll put that proviso before yeah. what I'm about to say. Um, in that, I think for me, artificial intelligence doesn't worry me, but real stupidity does. Yeah. <laughs> and what I mean, and of course, what I mean by that is that because um, AI AI as, as we know it, I don't I don't necessarily I wouldn't necessarily say AI is Advanced. Well, I mean, AI is advanced, but I think it really again we need we need to kind of open that box slightly to kind of think about what what we're talking about here. Because again, I think 
the, the kind of, I guess, the common understanding of AI is very much the, you know, the Skynet Terminator yeah. super intelligence. That there is this, you know, there's this singularity that will exist that will control everything and will know every instance, past, present, and future, and you know, the end of the universe as we know it, and all this kind of stuff. Um, whereas in reality, um, AI, where we are now, is very much what we define as a narrow, narrow AI. So of yeah. course, we've got. Um, in the future, we'll have general AI and the super AI, which is very much the, you know, the, the self-aware AI, and 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 the, uh, and this almost going towards the singularity. But but the where we are now in terms of narrow AI is utilizing these advanced learning uh, networks, mechanisms, algorithms to to make decision-making processes. So so essentially, it's advanced learning analytics. Yeah. And, um, so which I think has been, I think. The development of AI has been very great and has actually fueled a lot of progression technologically and also in terms of society. But when I'm talking about when I mentioned there about real stupidity, I think that's the issue. There is is how AI is being used, and that that, that to me worries me about the you know, worries me more about the AI itself. And it kind of links into this overall theme um, that we've been talking about here you know, with with technology. It's not you know it's not the technology itself; it's how the technology is used. So with AI, it, it's the same thing. So, so to give you, a, to, you know, when we think about how AI is being used in the sense of um, in decision making uh, purposes and, uh, and, and that kind of thing, it very much, I think, highlights some of the um, issues that we're actually facing within the the, the, ste- the steam sector itself, and, in, and especially when it comes to inadequately inadequately trained AI. Yeah. So, for for example, when we look when we think of how facial recognition has been used by law enforcement agencies, and then of course the AI that's powering the facial recognition has only been trained on limited data sets, and so actually it was found that the AI was being you know the the, the decisions or at least the predictions that, it, that its outputs were discriminating against people of color. Now that's not to say that the AI is inherently racist, but the, it's it's a reflection of how it's been trained. If it's only been given a, a limited amount of data set or not been trained appropriately, then in turn its output is going to be flawed. And and so I think the difficulty, especially in some of these law enforcement contexts, or when the Met Police, for example, in London were using facial recognition, they had a van that was parked up with the cameras and there were, you know, scanning people's faces yeah. as they're walking past and to identify if they were potentially wanted uh, as the term terminology they use so the algorithm or the computer wasn't identifying the people to say yes this is this is joe blogs and he is wanted for theft it was just saying whether they're you know whether they're wanted or not wanted yeah. but it was giving a percentage probability so of course uh, and unfortunately with people of color because of it had less uh, I guess I've a trained data set in order to actually make a good decision. It was giving a percentage probability that yes, this person could be wanted. But the key there being, it's a percentage probability. Yeah. And I think the difficult, the failing there, not just of course you've got the fail failing AI, but then on the human aspect of it, the officer or the individual there wasn't looking at the AI for what it was that was giving a suggestion that potentially this person could be wanted. So for the human to then look at it and go, well, is this person actually wanted? Do we know this person? Instead, the person's saying, oh, the AI says wanted. So, you know, it's like the computer says yes, computer says no. Computer says this, so we arrest you. And then, of course, when the person on the street is saying, well, you know, why are you arresting me or whatever? 
it then turns into this conversation about resisting arrest and becomes all sorts of, you know, it becomes so convoluted and very dangerous in that respect. Yeah, and for me, so, for me also, when it, when it, it says that they're wanted, and if you don't know what the crime is, the crime was something like you didn't pay a court fine, or, or uh, basically uh, you sold the car and didn't send on the documents, so that car was then used in, in, in a crime. The crime can vary, so it, it'd be good yep. to know what the crime is. So if it's a minor crime, why has spent officers going down and bring this person, this person for like a, a, a fine that didn't pay teeth license, for example? Something so simple yep. as that. Yeah, yeah, exactly, and 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 I, and I think, and this is the thing. I mean, and so, and and this brings into the conversation something that is really important in terms of nuance and in terms of context as well, because of course, a lot of the thinking around AI and using AI is that it's um, supposedly, or at least in all intents and purposes, and in a best case scenario, partial yeah. sense that you know it's logical. It's based on the fact, based on the data that has been inputted, it has generated this output. However, we all know, as you say, that in law enforcement, law enforcement in itself, whilst you have set laws and rules and things that you have to follow and certain things that take place in order for an offence to be committed, at the same time, there is nuance to that. So, which is why, even so, whilst on the on the practitioner side of law, you have officers that are expected to be impartial in delivering or you know, arresting people or whatever it might be in collecting evidence, we still rely on the legal system where we have a jury made up of you know of a person's yeah. peers. So you know, so we balance the nuance. So we make sure that actually things are assessed on the evidence is assessed on the you know, on the value of the evidence, but also incorporating that nuance through the peers. So so, and I think that's where that when we talk about the you know the misuse of AI, I think that's the problem. So so AI AI is great for analyzing bulk amounts of data. Mm. So I can think of you know, investigational, I guess, investigations context where there's huge amounts of, of evidence or even in, in cybercrime or, um, you know, those kinds of cyber forensics um, investigations where sometimes when computers that are seized, for example, that have millions and millions of photographs, for example, and you actually need to kind of process them and analyze them and actually work out what's relevant, what isn't. And AI and computer vision is amazing at going through you know gigabytes and terabytes of information very very quickly. Whereas traditionally, when I first started in my kind of cybercrime career, especially in, in investigations years ago, um, that was a human job. So someone would be sat there and going through each of these images individually and labeling them and and whatever. Which I mean, you know, of course that's damaging to an officer's mental health <laughs> just yeah. for having a person doing that. But of course, it's a very protracted process. So so using an AI to really um, you know kind of do this initial sift and, and really process that information and then provide the the kind of shortlisted here is you know here are some things of potential note of which a human can then say ah this is good this is good yeah. this is irrelevant or whatever it might, might be and of course ai learns so the more it does you know the more you do that and then the better it becomes it but again ai really needs to be and, and it should be in is a, a tool that's an augmentative tool you know, it, it's supposed to help streamline a process. It makes you makes a process a bit faster and a bit better in in that respect, or almost like a perhaps a second an opinion in in some context. So, so outside of uh, you know the law enforcement kind of uh, arena, when we think of uses of AI, we can think of in the, in the medical you know in the medical sector when we're thinking of computer vision and identification of cancer from yeah. scans, whether it's X-rays or whatever other medical scans, was an AI can be trained on data sets from scans that are all over the world, you know, again, millions and hundreds of millions of, of scans, of, of, of positive scans of cancer. So it can actually learn and 
can detect signs in imagery that a human doctor, as, as good as a doctor may be and experience may be, just it's physically impossible for a doctor to have that knowledge of that number of scans. So mm-hmm. at least a computer vision uh, algorithm can look at that. And again, not to say, you know, not to say uh, categorically this person has this, this form of cancer, but at least providing that insight of based on this information, it could well be that, you know, scans of this type at this time has actually led to um, this type of cancer, so therefore it highlights it to the doctor to then better make a better decision. Yeah. So it's it's really supporting and 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 uh, and kind of delivering a, a better service or you know and better results in in the, in the healthcare profession. And then of course, uh, AI is being utilised now in the fight against COVID nineteen when we're looking at um, clinical trials and and also the formulation of new compounds and pharmaceuticals for vaccinations and that kind of thing. So again, in terms of huge data analytics and and, and kind of number crunching and and the very mathematical, I guess, for want of a better word, the donkey work, the grunt work, an AI algorithm, that's that's the perfect thing that narrow AI is good at. Huge amounts of data that it goes in the system, that goes through the grinder, and then you come out with the particular prediction. Um, And I think... Really, you know, talking about my worries of AI or how they're being used, I think it's, in a way, it's very much highlighting, I think, some of, it's reflective of some of the issues and the challenges that we have in society. So in tech specifically, we have the challenge, uh, or I say within tech, within STEAM, so, you know, science, tech, engineering, and maths, um, diversity being key. So when I say diversity, of course, we're talking about, you know, gender diversity, but also we're talking about, um, you know, whether it's people's orientation, background, cultural, yeah. or even educational experience, life experience, whatever. Um, because when, when we're building algorithms that are uh, interacting or that are operating at the intersection of the human and technological space, we need to have algorithms that have a full understanding or at least as, as good as an understanding as we can provide it. Um, with dealing and making those decisions, and uh, you know, and kind of operating in that space. So, so whether that's through the development of the AI itself and the coding of the AI itself through people that actually, you know, again from different backgrounds and different understandings to put those different perspectives in, but also something that I advocate as well more holistically when we're starting to talk about the when we're talking about the use of the AI itself and in what kind of mechanisms it's being used in, incorporating other disciplines. So when we're talking about you know. Uh, soci- sociology, anthropology, even, you know, psych- psychology, a lot of uh, philosophy, e- even religion, for example. I mean, there's a lot of uh, religious considerations that need to be inserted into the technological constructs because, well, again, when we're talking about AI and decision-making and potentially getting to a point where um, a technological algorithm will be augmenting or maybe someday replacing human thinking, there needs to be a level of morality and that that side of, of thinking as well and a lot of people in the world rely on religion as their moral compass so so we really need to diversify the thinking and the input and, and, and the, the collaboration that it takes to actually build these AIs rather than leaving it to you know the small subsect yeah. of uh, data scientists and machine learning engineers who don't get me wrong are very talented and, and you know have a far you know, greater grasp of, of those deeper you know mathematical concepts that I do um but uh, but yeah, but but it's again, it's 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 narrow. As I said, artificial narrow intelligence. It's a narrow solution for a narrow purpose. Yeah. The worry is that it's being used for things that perhaps it isn't ready to be used for yet. Yeah. So we're walking, bef- we're running before we can walk. And also, I guess, to use common sense, 
So when it's doing it, it, it thinks like a human. Like, it's, for example, if you're if you're a police officer and you stop somebody if you're going two miles an hour over the speed limit, they know that basically that's that just giving the warning you've done that. But can a computer actually an AI do that as well? Well, 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 exactly, and that's the thing because at the minute with um, you know an artificial an arrow AI, well, no, because it's 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 a binary, it's, you know, it's, it's a prediction, yes or no, based on whatever it is. So, are they speeding? Yes, because in theory, you've got two miles an hour because two miles an hour over, yes, they yeah. are speeding. And the interesting thing there, I mean, this kind of goes into more of a legal uh, um, conversation, but in the UK, for example, when we think of speeding cameras or um, so speeding offences, when you have those stationary Gatso cameras, the threshold for the margin of error is a lot slimmer because the camera is calibrated and if it says you're doing whatever over, that's what you're doing. Yeah. Whereas if it's a human operator holding a speed gun, the tolerances are higher because is the speed gun calibrated? Well, it could be, but is the officer standing in a particular way? Are they handling the equipment properly? Are they doing this and the other? But yeah. like you say, when but there's also the discretion aspect of it as well, which is key, I think, in, in law enforcement, but also in society as a, as a whole, when we talk, talk about discretion and context and nuance, which yeah. at the moment AI doesn't have, which again, in, 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 in like I said, in some use cases, there is there isn't a need for nuance when it's a set decision based on number crunching or some analytics. But when we're talking about, um, you know, the suspension of someone's liberty through an arrest for something that they've been identified with based purely on an algorithm, yeah, that's a, yeah, that, that's, a, that's a very, very dangerous thing. And that's where my worry what lies. It's the, so yeah, it's in the use of AI as opposed to the actual advancement of AI itself. If we can, if we can work on the use and how it's used, and again, don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm not an advocate to say, Let's not use AI. Let's use yeah. technology because I'm a firm believer that we should definitely use it because there are so many good use cases. But you know, we need to use it properly. We need to learn how to use it properly. When doctors use scalpels, they go through years and years of medical training in order to perform surgeries. They're not just given their tool set and say, "Right, you go yeah. and you go and use these these really really sharp tools. You go and try and do you try and perform this surgery with it." So, think with that, AI is a really really powerful tool, but we need to use it in the right context and we need to have put the resources you know, in the appropriate places to make sure that they're being used responsibly and where they're not, that there's accountability as well. So it's yeah. less of the wild west of let's just try and use this algorithm and see if it works and oh, whoops, sorry, it didn't work. So we'll try and do it some, some, some other way. I remember a couple years ago, I was watching the episode of the Grand Tour and the three boys were in the cars in China. Every hundred meters, there was a camera on the road. And that kind of scares me that, that, and I'm thinking about Hong Kong as well, everywhere there's cameras. Yeah, well, exactly. I mean, when you, when you look at uh, Shenzhen, for example, in, in, in China, so of course you've got all of the cameras, um, you know, very advanced facial recognition. And of course there's the interconnectivity there as well with WeChat and the government database for identification and whatnot. So WeChat, of course, is like, um, uh, I guess it's like a, an advanced WhatsApp. Yeah. I say advanced WhatsApp because it's WhatsApp, but there's additional functionality. So you know, there's a payment method, there's yeah. a payment mechanism, and also about identify things and everything else. So, so when you have a WhatsApp account, essentially, you know, everyone in, in within the Chinese societal construct, what um, uh, WeChat is uh, an identifier tool as well. You can use it to identify yourself and get access to certain services and whatever. But for example, in, in Shenzhen, uh, um, if yeah, if you get to a um, as a pedestrian, you get to a pedestrian crossing, and it's you know red man, green man. So red man, so you, you shouldn't cross, and you and you jaywalk, so you just decide to cross the road. Which in many countries it's an offence, but 
nothing really happens unless yeah. you you know unless you you cause an accident or you know there, there's a consequence of something that you do but 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 there you you know you cross the road and the camera obviously gets you recognizes you but in the time it takes for you to cross the road by the time you get to the other side of the road you'll already have a notification on your wechat to say that you've been spotted committing this offense and you've already been fined and it's already been taken out of your account and you know and yeah so the whole kind of judicial kind of process has happened in that few seconds so you get to, and so on one hand you yeah it's it, it, it's frightening in a way to think well if there's that level of autonomy for that kind of offense you know it's worrying to think what else could be happening and and in terms of identification and tracking and uh, and also of course i mean there's the social scoring element as well that happens in, in in these sorts of countries that i won't get into now but yeah. again if, you know when you're committing certain types of offenses or you're in certain types of area areas then that you know affects your social scoring and then accessibility to certain things and do you fit within a certain narrative and whatever so so it is very much the uh i guess more towards the i don't want to say it's dystopian but it's more towards the dystopian side of 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 of, of, of surveillance and the use of technology yeah so again uh, yeah, which which is a good example because it's not it's not the technology, it's it's the use of it and yeah. how it's been used. So in that instance, they've used it. But interestingly enough, speaking to people in China, I mean, it's of course it's you can't always believe everything that you read or or, or or see. But I think I think the societal construct is very different, and I think maybe there might be some people that might not necessarily have too much of a you know um, of an issue with that. Yeah. I, I say I say that with a pinch of salt because, of course, sometimes you know when you're in societies that doesn't necessarily promote uh, free thinking or, or dissent, it's difficult to actually gauge well what what is what is a particular society's view of a particular construct if they can't actually you know have any dissent. So, and if they're not if, if they're not used to a free open society, and this one like a Big Brother world, are used to this, then then maybe they're not going to think it's okay. Yeah, no, exactly, and 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 to kind of you know. To put something, you know, to kind of look at the other side of the coin, because again, I, I, I like to, I like to be nuanced in, 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 in what I, when I'm talking. But so, if we think of this, of this dystopian flavored or dystopian side of things, be it in, 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 in the Chinas or the North Koreas of the world, um, when I look at Finland, for example, Finland is a very interesting place. Finland, of course, um, you know, prides itself in being the, the you know, the libertarian, the, the free thinking, the secure, the private, you know, the place yeah. of privacy, privacy and trust and, and freedom and whatnot, whatnot. Um, but it's very interesting for myself from a UK background. So, you know, in the UK and perhaps not having, you know, the most trust in, in the government or, 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 or public entities for that matter, not, not in a bad way, but of course, questioning government, because of course, in a democracy, we should question, you know, we should question our systems. Um, but coming to Finland, where there's a lot of mechanisms uh, here within um, the social security infrastructure, so so when uh, when you have your social security number, like I do here in Finland, but that's interconnected with lots of other information um, that the government actually does have on you or have access to. Um, for me, a lot of these things, you know, personally raise a red flag. When I'm thinking, wow, that that to me is borderline surveillance. You know, surveillance in a dystopian sense. Yeah. But but in Finland, it's the dumb thing, and because people are very trusting of their government, um, there's no issue. And, and but but again, the, 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 I suppose the difference there is that Finland is is a very powerful democracy in the sense that, of course, 
if people don't trust the government, they have the ability to vote and, and change things. So, so, and and also there are certain things without going too much into politics that certain events that have happened even recently within the politics of Finland that actually demonstrate that perhaps the government here are more trustworthy than they are in other countries in terms of how they act and what they do. So, so again, it, 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 it's very nuanced. But again, it's so. But but the, these mechanisms in terms of, of surveillance, in terms of Again, in Finland, my mobile phone being linked to my identity onto the government register and essentially with my social security and my mobile phone number, um, everything. The government has access to absolutely my existence in Finland yeah. and, and all of my interactions. Um, that's the same mechanisms and the same tools that they use in in these dystopian contexts, like I said, but the only differentiating factor being the the sense of democracy, let's say, or, or the, um, the agency of, of, of people within that construct. We had it here in Ireland, we had this thing called PSC card. It was a card introduced that, that the government said you need this, this card to access certain government services. And if, for example, you were somebody who actually got, a, who actually got free travel, they could use this card to, to track where you travel around Ireland. And there was one scenario where one of the ministers you introduced it said, well, it's, it's, it's compulsory but not mandatory. Mm. And I'm thinking, well, what is it? And then because... It had a photograph of you on the card. They were then told, actually, because the photograph was on the card, that's, that's there for storing uh, photographical data. Therefore, it's on a GDPR regulation. You know, to do this. So finally, this this card is no longer a uh, mentor anymore. But it was just a, a crazy few years where they, they were told, "Oh, you can't use the card. It's illegal. What it's doing?" And the government was saying, "No, we think it is legal." And they were going to go to court and fight. And people who were saying like, against GDPR regulation, you can't do this. It's it's kind of nuts. No, exactly, and, and, and I think the, but the, you know, the, the 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 kind of the secret source to, to you know to that is very much like you say, is the 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 legal mechanisms and the fact that people had the mechanisms to take that to court to challenge that, even yeah. if the government is saying, well, no, it's perfectly legal, we we can use this and whatever, you know, the fact that there's a mechanism that you can challenge it and it's reviewed and actually found that you know, it breaches GDPR or, or whatever the issue is and then things can be changed yeah. as opposed to being in a situation where things are mandated to say, well, you know, as as being a citizen of Ireland or being a citizen of Finland or, or the UK yeah. or whatever, you must, yeah, you must now give us your location at all times and you must subscribe to this particular well, uh, technological yeah, platform. Yeah, well, in, in our case, the watchdog who was overseeing this was a guy who oversees GDPR for Europe, the GDPR police force and our data commissioner and she said, we can't do this. The government said, you're wrong, we're taking you to court. Now, what worried me was, if the government, if that, if that uh, is done there, something like Facebook or somebody else can certainly decide, we're not going to obey well, uh, any, any regulation same with GDPR, because Irish government took it to court, we're going to do the exact same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I mean, so, uh, yeah. So, I mean, they're kind of link, going, going, kind of bringing back to... Um, you know, the, the, the you know the worries of technology and and specifically AI that, that that's why I think all of the, the, the you know this the, these constructs for you know when we talk about the use usage of it having these mechanisms of dissent of accountability of of you know verification of how is it being used and why and who's using it and what's happening what's happening with the data where's the data being sourced from that they're using and yeah. what are actually the consequences of its use and all of this stuff which right now is very cloudy and and a lot of mainly because i think a lot of a lot of companies a lot of entities that use ai of course don't understand, necessarily understand how it works and of course we, when we start going into machine learning and black boxes 
the whole you know you, you can't actually understand how it works yeah. because that's the whole that, that, that's how a black a black box is but in terms of how it works in the sense of yeah, how it's making its decision the, the level of accountability that I think happens for human operators needs to exist for I guess technological operators or these artificially intelligent uh, yeah. uh, entities beings uh, you know whatever whatever label or, 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 or um, definition you want to give them but but as part of as part of that uh, usage and that accountability and that agency again as I mentioned talking about the representation of of, of diversity in, in steam and also uh, and when we're talking about human centricity if we if we're having AI and technology that is fully interacting with humans on this kind of level then it needs to be you know we need to have a representative uh, slice of humanity let's say yeah. um, that's involved in the development you know the construction and development and further iterations of of, of, of these technologies and like I said so talking about the diversity within steam but also looking at as I mentioned before, the sociology, sociological aspects, and anthropological aspects, and philosophical, and also uh, with the UN, for example, the UN have their Sustainable Development Goals, which are very much um, looking at different areas of focus in terms of making a truly progressive society in terms of accessibility, gender equality, eradication of poverty, and and, and whatnot, but also in incorporating within those constructs, um, uh, I guess, the, the inclusion and, and collaboration with um, uh, indigenous communities and, and First Nations people. So, so a lot of work that we're doing with some of the projects that we're doing in IronX is very much looking at, rather than just looking at the technological components of of a blockchain project that we're doing, for example, seeing how does that actually affect society more moreover, and how can we actually include other parties that are outside of the technological space within this construct to actually build something that's truly representative of society and that actually benefits everyone equally. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that addresses. Um, what I define as, you, you know, you're creating then a real world solution to fix a real world problem, rather than just creating a solution that you, you know, for a, a problem that you define that doesn't actually isn't a problem for everyone, or isn't or, or a problem for a select few, which I think sometimes technology seems to kind of go towards. Yeah. Now, lastly, you're going to be talking to this year's uh, uh, this year's uh, Comcray Digital Services Quest for Quality Conference. What are you talking about? Yeah, so um, actually, my, my 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 talk is pretty reflective of almost everything that we you know that you and I have been talking about yeah. um, during this time. So, so I think the the theme was the the uh, I labelled it as the, the the problem of problem solving. So, it, but it was very much looking at um, how uh, I say industry uh, can sometimes create you know create a solution for the sake of creating a solution rather than addressing an actual real world problem. Yeah. And I think really, when we're talking about real world problems, I, I always think of, again, in in the tech sector and in this space more generally, where there's a lot of platitudes about how we need to, um, you know, fix a lot of the problems that we have, whether again, whether that's through internally through um, inclusion and diversity, or whether that's actually through problems such as environmental issues or, or, or whatever it is. But then there's always a disconnect between that and then what's actually happening. And for me, problem solving, when we start talking about, um, the, I guess, the more traditional cyclical development cycles, whether that's in uh, software development or in other technological things, but also in, in wider constructs where we have these uh, cycles of, of planning and developing and you know, operating and, and, and re-evaluation, um, really kind of trying to see where we can add in additional parts to that when we start thinking about 
again, actually identifying what it is that we're trying to do. So the problem with prob- I think the problem with problem basically the problem with problem solving is that I don't think as we see it now, problem solving doesn't actually solve a problem, um, or at least th- th- we're not solving the problems that we have. Yeah. And the problems that we are going to face, and really, we need to really shift our thinking in, in terms of if, if these, if you know, if, if these are the problems that we know we have now and that we're going to be facing. So, even when we, if, as an example, when we start thinking of COVID nineteen and pandemics and how COVID nineteen in singularity is, uh, you know, this pandemic, this health issue, uh, you know, this disease. However. Um, all of the surrounding things that are connected to that, when we start talking about the, the disruption in supply chain, in the economies, and all of these things that have been on the brink of collapse because of this one problem. And it's taken all of this to happen before people start thinking, right, how do we start innovating and thinking of how do we fix this? And for me, I don't want to, you know, I think we need to move away from wait, being reactive, waiting until something hits us, you know, Pardon, pardon the, the terminology, but yeah. hits us with our, you know, catches us with our pants down, <laughs> and uh, and then we kind of react to try and do something. Really, we need to start thinking about, you know, yeah, what are the problems and how can we actually solve them? How can we be more sustainable and circular in, in how we think and how we do things? And when I talk about sustainability, of course, not just from an environmental point of view, but just in terms of a uh, replicable and a repeatable point of view and a scaling point of view as well. How do we? How do we in areas? In areas like in the EU, where we perhaps um, are blessed to have um, the resources in terms of R&D and technologies and things where we can actually develop and create these ecosystems and these solutions, but then how do we take these things that we develop in Europe or, or in the Western Hemisphere, let's say, or in the Global North, and actually utilize that? And not just take this solution and then say, oh, we've got this great solution, so let's go to South Sub-Saharan Africa mm-hmm. and use it there because it won't work. But actually using it as a template to then you know, work with other countries or regions that don't necessarily have the same resources, but at the same time we can change and evolve and work together to actually create these things. So, so again, it, it's, it's redefining how we think about problem solving and, and more towards, uh, I guess, collaborative ecosystems. I think collaboration... Like, like we, we might have mentioned quite early on in the call, is 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 where is where I think we need to move, even with, with problem solving, thinking yeah. more collaboratively rather than competitively. Rather than me creating a solution that's going to outdo your solution, why don't I think about, well, if your solution does X and my solution can do Y, then why don't we see how we can put that together to then fix problem Z? Mm-hmm. and and, and and yeah, so so that's essentially what it is. But of course, it's it's covered from 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 my angle and my point of view, as as is I guess uh, quite uh, um, clear from from the conversation. My my, my background is cybersecurity and, and law enforcement and, and and some of these some of those sides of things. So of course, I'm coming at it from that kind of background. Yeah. But more importantly, it's it's very much to. It's more of a thought exploration. I, I, I don't want. To, I, I don't want to. Uh, um, I, I'm not. I'm not the person to uh, deliver deliver sermons with with absolute answers. Yeah. Of course, it's it's more to highlight these issues of what's going on and a lot of these things that people are already aware of anyway. But actually, kind of encouraging the discussion and finding ways to actually promote uh, more free thinking and thought exploration of how we can actually move forward and be more progressive and more uh, collaborative, especially now more than ever because. Yeah. Uh, of the challenges that we are facing, both through pandemic and climate change, and 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 the, and the other 
yeah, there are huge, huge problems uh, that we face. Yeah, all right, that's fine. Thanks so much for that enlightening talk uh, and and chat, uh, Nishan. Have a great day. And oh, you're welcome. Thank you. And take care. Thanks. Bye now.